Britney Spears, 2001 single, I'm a Slave for You. And on this episode of the Anomalous Podcast, we will be listening to women in pop music and examining gender, femininity, and capitalism in all of their contradictory sheen. That track by Miss Britney Spears is... uh, I decided to open this podcast with that track for the slave metaphor. Uh, in 2001, I was a preteen. I did not really think much of uh, this the song being at all salacious. I was like, yeah, dancing in a club. She's older than me. I, you know, she's like, do what she wants to do. As a preen, on this idea of women themselves, or, uh, women sexuality to empower themselves. And now that I've grown up, I've, I've become a, a little more critical of of women, of, of, of that, uh, again, that contradiction or that kind of, there's a question of is it empowerment or is it objectification? Is it agency or is it the male gaze? And I think that's a huge, that's always thing that, especially with Britney Spears, because she was so young and um, she was at her most famous and she was a teenager when she became famous, that I think that question being those questions being raised is um, is very much some people probably hear those questions don't I don't be before I'm a slave for you now and the exorcist uh, in me because um, there is one uh, takes it to mean symbolically I'm a slave for. You. I'm a slave for the music industry. I'm a slave for the media. I'm a slave for the male gaze. I'm a slave for capitalism and, and commercialism. And and if we look at the lyrics for the song, I I, I find them again, when I was 13, I was like, whatever. But now I'm like, oh my gosh, is this baby and she's singing about she's singing like this. Oh gosh. <laughs> Hella old now. Um Hear the lyrics. All you people look at me like I'm a little girl. Well, did you ever think it'd be okay for me to step into this world? Always, oh, little girl, don't step into the club. Well, I'm just trying to find out why, because dancing's what I love. Now watch me. And it goes on. Get it, get it, get it, get it. Oh, get it, get it, get it, get it. Whoa. Do you like it? Get it, get it, get it, get it. 
This feels good. So that kind of tongue-in-cheek line that I always find particular to to um, pop music and to Britney Spears tracks, there's a self-awareness around her role in the milieu. Well, did you ever think it'd be okay for me to, all you people look at me like I'm a little girl. Well, did you ever think it'd be okay for me to step into this world? That line, well, did you ever think it'd be okay for me to step into this world? There are people around her enabling her loss of innocence is is kind of what that line means to me. There, She was exposed to the debauchery of the entertainment business as a child. And, and people, her parents, you know, her managers, the adults that she worked with as a teenager, they all okayed it. And now they're saying, don't step into the club, don't go too far, but she's curious. She's seen little glimpses of it. People have definitely felt entitled to her, you know, uh, uh, name, her her status, her body even. So she's trying to find out why. Now watch her, now watch me. But, but and so I think that's a, it's just a fascinating first verse and there's a bit of a self-awareness to it that, again, that question of how much agency does she have? I, I don't know that she wrote this song, but even just, um, ignoring that aspect of it, the songwriting aspect. It's in the more narratively so. I mean, how much agency does she have? And or is how much is this the work of adults, basically, or or people trying to make a buck off of a song off of a music video. And uh, and again, and the sense of, of the male gaze. I'm actually going to play a clip from the MTV making video uh, of this song. Listen to it here. You're going to literally come up and you're dancing for yourself, looking back at this guy who's watching you. So it's again, it's kind of voyeuristic, right? Here we go. <laughs> so he says, so you're dancing for yourself, and there's this guy watching you. So it's kind of voyeuristic, right? That's a that's actually what's ironic about it is that's a male director who will literally be watching Britney Spears dance for herself in the mirror in this video called "I'm a Slave for You," and yet there's also this idea of Miss Spears being obviously the one in charge. She's the one in the center of it all. She's the reason why they're all there making that music video that day. She's, I, in, a, in a way, she's in the, the power position, in a way. But at the same time, she's still subject to the male gaze. And they're all, you know, I mean, it's in the now watch me. And I, I think there, I, I, it's just, it's kind of eerie how, how um, metaphorical it is and yet how, um, that like just, it, it, it just illuminates why this is, these questions are so puzzling to me um, now as an, as an adult. Um, the 
March 19th, 1999 Rolling Stone article on Britney Spears. This was her first uh, Rolling Stone uh, interview, and it was kind of like her big first interview. Uh, it starts with, uh, it's written by a man named Stephen. It starts with, Britney Spears extends a honeyed thigh across the length of the sofa, keeping one foot on the floor. Uh, so, Her blonde streaked hair is piled high, exposing two little diamond earrings on each earlobe. Her face is fully made up, down to carefully applied lip liner. The baby fat logo of Spears' pink t-shirt is distended by her ample chest and her silky white shorts. <sighs> it's... That, that's the male gaze. That's a male writer basically, uh, you know, verbally explaining his, his gaze onto this young woman. And the article's paywalled now, but I've read it before. And it, it goes on to, to even say that Miss Spears, all of the kind of different ideas for the photos, her with her dolls, wearing a midriff shirt and short shorts, her with the Teletubby, these were all her ideas. And it makes me wonder how much she had, being someone who grew up in the entertainment industry, how much she had internalized the expectations of her of femininity and how you can call them um how you can call it agency because she's saying yeah let's do this but she's also 17 or 16 and she's also just trying to i mean she's trying to be be famous and and she's probably even gotten validation for you know i'm making an assumption at this point but you know she's she's gotten as a teenager, I can just imagine having something like that enforced your sexuality or the way you look, your beauty, um, your uh, clothing, your revealing clothing, being validated for you and wanting to live up to that. That's where you're getting, that's where you're getting acceptance. Um, and this, so this placing this idea of agency on a teenager is something that our society right now is very critical of. And Britney Spears is quite the cautionary tale due to her trajectory um, in hindsight now. And, and um, as we, you know, we've seen, I'm not going to get into the current issues facing Britney, um, but I do think it's there's a reason why these issues are, are being brought up now. I think Britney's like everything that's happened to Britney Spears, like that's a reason we should all be talking about sexualizing minors or objectifying women or the strain of the role strain of capitalism of, of even, you know, you, I'm a slave for you. I even think of like wage laborers, you know, I think of as a, staunch anarchist you know i think of a, a slave being the minimum wage worker the the blue collar worker the you know food industry worker like those are the slaves but even celebrities like even someone with beauty and talent and fame and money can't escape the throes of capitalism you know and I mean, gosh, has anyone suffered as publicly in terms of capitalism as much as Britney Spears has? I don't really know. Um, the Camille pa Pahina article on Hugh Hefner's legacy I found relevant to um, 
to to this topic of Britney Spears. This article, uh, the pro-sex feminist, cultural critic, and author tells THR why Hef's art of seduction is needed today and how Gloria Steinem is not a role model for young women. So with the death of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner on September 27th, cultural historian and contrarian feminist Camille Paglia spoke to The Hollywood Reporter in an exclusive interview on topics ranging from what Hef's choice of the bunny costume revealed about him to the current dreary state of relationships between the sexes. So this she this person, Camille, she, she does have a contrarian view of contemporary feminism, and I actually value it because um, I feel like discourse, um, critical discourse has become so, uh, it's become such an echo chamber and I value divergent viewpoints in order to, I guess, think more or to be more critical. Um, so I don't necessarily agree, but it is something to think about in terms of what Camille's, um, perspective is. And, and I'll relate it to Ms. Spears as well. So the interviewer says, in the early 1990s, you said that Hugh Hefner ushered in a revolution in American sexual consciousness. Some say that the women in Playboy come across as commodities, like a stereo. But I think Playboy is more an appreciation of pleasure of all kinds. What would you add to his legacy today, if anything? And Camille replies, I would hope that people could see the positives in the Playboy sexual landscape the foregrounding of pleasure and fun and humor. Sex is not a tragedy, it's a comedy. So this Camille, Miss um, Paglia, is, is saying that sex doesn't have to be so condemned. It doesn't have to be so problematized. It doesn't have to be um, just this, it doesn't have to be such an issue. Sex is sex. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. And I think that's where... And again, it's like, well, if we look at it that way, like, it is, is that, does that excuse sexualizing minors? Like, I don't, I don't think it does, but it is kind of like, if sex is supposed to be fun and not a tragedy, and there's a young girl who wants to explore her sexuality for the public as a pop star through art and music. I mean, is that, I, I, I find it to be a problem, but I think that there is something to say to, to that perspective. And I, and I don't know that this person is, is saying, is talking about the sexualization of minors, but I think it's, Everything is so critiqued now, and including Hugh Hefner, including the legacy of Playboy. You know, it's subjectification of women and Playboy bunnies and all all of this. And and this person's saying like, it doesn't have to be so serious, y'all. It can be fun. And um, this article was written or published after the election, so so they or the twenty sixteen uh, presidential election. So they do talk about Trump. Camille says, I instantly recognized and understood in Trump because I'd always been an admirer of Hefner's sexual cosmos. I can certainly see how retrograde and nostalgic it is, but at the same time, I maintain that even in the photos that the New York Times posted and trying to con con 
convict Trump of sexism, you can feel leaping from these pictures the intense sizzle of sexual polarization. And that long ago time when men were men and women were women. So this person maybe enforces certain gender roles and maybe is less critical of um, relationships or kind of femininities relationship to sexuality um, in terms of being uh, objectified. She goes on to say, the unhappy truth is that the more the sexes have blended, the less each sex is interested in the other. So now we're now in a period of sexual boredom and inertia. With the sexes so bored with each other, all that's left are these feminist witch hunts. And that's where the energy is. And meanwhile, men are shrinking. I see men turning away from women and simply being content with the world of fantasy because women have become too thin-skinned, resentful, and high-maintenance. And American women don't seem to know what they want any longer. <laughs> so this, and she goes on to kind of have a heteronormative, naturalist, uh, biological, essentialist perspective of things, you know, Gender relations uh, are about procreation and reproduction of the species, et cetera, et cetera. That's an interesting way to put it. To put it, uh, I can't necessarily. Um, I don't want to um, completely disagree because I do value what she's saying, but um, I think it's up for critique. She goes on to say, women's sexual responses are notoriously slower than men's. Truly sophisticated seducers knew that women have to be courted and that women love an ambiance, setting a stage. So that's kind of interesting when thinking of someone like a performer, Britney Spears, for example. Um, and she goes on to say, today, alas, too many young women feel they have to provide quick sex or they'll lose social status. So there's that problem, problematization of it too. You know, where does that come from? Why do young women feel that way about quick sex? Like what influence did they have? I'm not blaming Britney Spears by any means. I'm more including her in that, um, you know, relating sex to social status, that is. Um, and Camille goes on, Today's hookup culture, which is the ultimate product of my generation's sexual revolution, seems markedly disillusioning in how it's reduced sex to male needs, to the general male desire for wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, efficiency, with no commitment afterwards. We're in a period of great sexual confusion and rancor right now. The sexes are very wary of each other. There's no pressure on men to marry because they can get sex very easily in other ways. She goes on to cite pornography, um... And, and PC culture, um, which is very interesting. I mean, because she's found ways to validate her, her perspective. Um, but if feminism means anything, it should be encouraging young women to take control of every aspect of their sex lives, including their own impulses, conflicts, and disappointments. That's what's tragic about all this. Young women don't seem to realize that in demanding adult inquiry into their sex lives, they are forfeiting their own freedom and agency. Young women are being taught that men have all the power and have used it throughout history to oppress women. Women don't seem to realize how much power they have to crush men. Strong women have always known how to control men. So 
in this Britney Spears example, I do wonder, um, you know, again, it's so weird. It's it's so bizarre to me. And I actually think about this beyond um, podcasting and before Free Britney or anything like that. Like, it just this idea of, so is Britney Spears in her the way that she was able to kind of claim center stage and become this influential, powerful being based off of her sexuality, is that empowering? Empowering, <laughs> excuse me, or is that reductive? Is that just being objectified and sexualized and playing into the uh, expectations of gender? And... Um, you know, performing for the male gaze and trying to fulfill some male fantasy. It's its such a strange question to me because it, it seems like, it, I guess the answer is both, but where is the line really drawn? And, and I think that's what I'm most critical of currently and have been for a long time. I find it um, puzzling <laughs> to say, I, I just find it to be such a contradiction of how of how sex is used. And and maybe in the if anyone listens to this and comments on it, like answering that question um, in terms of, you know, if any women listen to this, like what is that line? Is there a line between agency and um, the male, the male gaze and in that kind of power struggle between f- female or woman agency and uh, m- m- the male gaze and the male fantasy. One article is actually from 2015. It's called, Sorry, We're Not Buying Britney Spears as a Feminist Icon. Uh, this writer quotes a few others who called themselves Britney Spears scholars. This writer says, We love strong, independent women of all stripes, but their argument for Britney as a feminist role model seems a little flawed. They note the singer's rise to fame, how her raunchy teen act was a statement of power and control. Quotes, She's really played off of this virginal sexual thing as something that's carried on through her career, and as something she's profited off of in a feminist way, Goldberg said. Her decision to shave her head? This is her divorcing herself from her public image, Goldberg says. It's her being like, fuck what you think. I'm going to shave off all my fucking hair and I'm not going to be a sex symbol to you guys anymore. Feminism seems to be a word people toss around these days to describe anything a woman does, it seems, including breathing on her own. That's the writer. Um, Britney Spears is an entertainer, but feminist icon? We're not so sure. We're not buying the argument that her virginal sexual act was as feminist as it was appealing to the troubling male fantasy who exhibits as much of an aggressive sexual appetite as she does naivete. Sounds like a creepy, mouth-breathing, men's rights activist's dream rather than a feminist statement. I butchered that sentence. Um, Cosmopolitan Magazine points out that Britney Spears' father to this day is in control of her money due to a court-ordered conservatorship. 
pretty sure an independent woman is supposed to be in control of her own finances. Also, Britney Spears' infamous head-shaving incident seems as if it was more of a cry for help from the ravages of fame as opposed to a feminist statement. She was clearly unstable during that time, and one can argue that Spears' over-sexualized image, controlled by an entire team of people, is part of the reason why she left out. Um, that's another thing. So many people have opinions on this woman now. She's a woman, grown woman. And at the time, you know, at, at the height of her fame, one could say she was a young woman. And we'll never really know the truth. Like, we have all of our ideas. People, you know, some through that and saw it kind of secondhand. Um, some of us are younger and, you know, more aware of it now so we're kind of seeing it through a, a, in a, histor a historical lens um but the but we'll never really know and again that brings up this idea of does britney spears have any agency in how her narrative is framed it, it's it's bizarre and it's a little sad and it's a little eerie and it's it's one of the reasons i think there's such a um, a movement around her around this person now and maybe one day we the viewers the audiences the voyeurs will um get to hear her her side of the story um and i, I don't know what we, i don't know what would happen in that case i don't know what the circumstances would be um to hear from her in a non-controlled manner but I don't want to get too much into that. Um, one article from Time magazine, from Britney to Buffy, we're suddenly rethinking post-feminist pop culture and nothing could be healthier. So this article kind of um, critiques third wave feminism and uh, as, as that was kind of the, the 90s, the 1990s and early aughts. Post-feminism, and to a lesser extent, the relatively playful third wave were a gift to the entertainment industry. For the first time in decades, Hollywood could, without looking retrograde, fill its frames with hot girls in tight clothes who lived to shop, primp, and have sex. The updated version differed from the Playboy Playmates and Housewives of the 50s in that its ideal femme also, figuratively, if not literally, kicked ass. In attract as attractive to women as it was titillating to men, this image sold product. Romance novels were rebranded as Chicklet. Uh, we got the high-achieving materialistic women warriors of Sex and the City and Ally McBeal. Teen fair like Buffy, Mean Girls, and Bring It On offered a junior version of the same. Cutthroat high school girls for whom short skirts and lipstick were weapons of war. In music, the explicitly feminist acts that ruled the early 90s from salt and Peppa, Spice Girls, Britney, Christina Aguilera, Jessica Simpson, Beyonce's breakout group, Destiny's Child, and a raft of other beautiful young singers who's, who existed at the intersection of strength and sex appeal. A lot of these stories and personalities were fun. Many served as talismans for female fans in a sexist society, but the public response to them was confusing and incoherent. Did we look up to these women because they were powerful and confident or because they were pretty and rich or both? Was it okay that these women were contorting themselves physically and otherwise to emulate these new quasi-feminist icons? And why did we respond with such schadenfreude? 
what a word, when very young, very famous women like Spears, Amy Winehouse, or Lindsay Lohan revealed themselves under the constant glare of flashbulbs to the less to be less than invincible. So, um, the, that's pretty much asking the question um, that we've come to as a society around femininity. Um, and, and my main question, you know, do we look up to these women because they're powerful or because they're emulating some standard set forth by, uh, I'll just patriarchal forces? The article goes on, these questions are much older than the Framing Britney Spears documentary, the, the 21, 2021 documentary that was released about um, Britney Spears' kind of history and current issues in the pop zeitgeist. Journalist Ariel Levy wrote the first draft in her widely read 2005 book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Ranch Culture, which fuses report, reported polemic to our sex positive culture was mostly just enlisting women in their own objectification. It's an important book, but one whose lack of interest in class, race, or the systemic roots of women's choices has not aged well. Feminist consciousness and the cultural conversation at large have shifted in the past 16 years. Social media has given marginalized voices a bigger platform while intersectionality, the idea that all aspects of a person's identity combine to form a matrix of privileges and oppressions, has filtered down from academic discourse to the mainstream. Two turning points were Spears' breakdown in the late aughts and the death of Amy Winehouse in 2011. Trage tragedies that revealed how much damage years of surveillance, objectification, and ridicule could do to a young woman. Yikes. Um, it's a very interesting article. Um, I will, of course, be uh, listing it uh, as a reference. and do recommend reading it. So this is where we've come as a society. And obviously, we can look at Britney Spears' whole trajectory and... I think she is such an, she's like the case study for these questions that I'm asking and that these other articles are posing as well around femininity and agency and objectification and capitalism and sexuality. And we will continue to explore through uh, some other tracks. Let's get to it, y'all. We are now going to time travel 20 years from 2001 to 2021 with the kind of uh, next generation pop star, uh, Miss Billie Eilish. This is not my responsibility. About my clothes. 
Some people hate what I wear. Some people praise it. Some people use it to shame others. Some people use it to shame me. But I feel you watching. Always. And nothing I do goes unseen. So while I feel your stare, your disapproval, or your sigh of relief, if I lived by them, I'd never be able to move. Would you like me to be smaller, weaker, softer, taller? Would you like me to be quiet? Do my shoulders provoke Does my chest? Am I my stomach, my hips, the body I was born with? Is it not what you wanted? If I wear what is comfortable, I am not a woman. If I shed the layers, I'm a slut. Though you've never seen my body, you still judge it and judge me for it. Why? We make assumptions about people based on their size. We decide who they are. We decide what they're worth. If I wear more, if I wear less, who decides what that makes me? What that means? Is my value based only on your perception? Or is your opinion of me not my responsibility? So that um, is a track, a spoken word track off of the singer's most recent album called Happier Than Ever. It was released like a month ago. And uh, it's a pretty sharp turn from uh, I'm a slave for you to now not my responsibility. Like even those statements juxtapose each other and um, show just the different mindsets of these of these two generations essentially and um i i think they're both i mean both britney spears and billie eilish like the biggest pop stars of their day became famous when they were you know before they were 15 years old and are you know subject to public scrutiny um as young women and well i think how the public engages with and experiences celebrity now is different than it was 20 years ago. I still think a lot of the same things come up and I imagine that it's um, equally as agitating (laughs) and anxiety inducing um, now as it was then. Um, And as, as I think the song really, uh, uh, illustrates. 
And I do, I do think there's a pretty marked uh, contradiction between the two, the, the slave for you. Brit- Britney Spears was a slave to it all. Billie Eilish is saying, basically, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, it's not mine. I'm not responsible for anything that, that, you know, any view that you're going to have, any male gaze, any male fantasy. No, it's not my responsibility. And um, this I actually find to be, wow, what a, what a, this is that question of, of, you know, can sexuality be empowered when dealing with capitalism, when dealing with femininity, when dealing with the male gaze, um, and, and current gender relations. I, I find this to be, and maybe in 20 years, there'll be a better example of what sexuality empowered looks like. But I, I think this one kind of responds to what people expect of um, women, women pop stars and celebrity figures and public figures. And... Um, reconciles some of those issues and Billie Eilish is known for um kind of being anti a lot of things you know anti-sexy for one thing and this song you know by her own choice you know she wears or at least up to a certain point where wore like baggy clothes and dyed her hair like slime green and and um and stuff like that. And yet in her voice to me, like as a listener, and I I am a fan, um, there's something, mm, there's something sexy about her voice. You know, it's this whisper. It's, it's not nasally and infantile, like Britney Spears is singing voice, but it's more of like this cooing, whispering, kind of almost siren-like, um, you know, alluring type type singing voice. And here she is in that kind of same mm, alluring, whispery way. She's saying that your gaze isn't, you know, it doesn't make you can you can have your gaze you can have your opinion and your perceptions but that's not me do my shoulders provoke you does my chest am i my stomach my hips the body i was born with it's not what you wanted if i wear what is comfortable i'm not a woman if i shed the layers i'm a slut though you've never seen my body you still judge it and judge me for it why so she's she's Billie Eilish is, in this instance, turning it around on the voyeur rather than inviting them to watch her. (laughs) She's saying, what the fuck is it to you? And I I think that's, that's where, at least in this instance, sexuality can be empowered not just in by nature because she's choosing to be covered up or at least from she's it from this vantage point 
you know, she's talking about covering herself up relative to bearing skin, but just that she's saying, regardless of what I do, I'm not doing it for you. And you, you can have your opinions and you can have your suggestions, but, and you can have your expectations of me or what you, you know, if you think I'm a role model or not, that's all, that's all fine. But that has actually nothing to do with who this young woman is as an artist, as an individual, as a celebrity even. And I find that that's where I, I do find that to be, to be empowering and, and someone really reclaiming their sexuality. She is young. Who knows what will happen? I, I do think celebrity the way we process celebrity has changed so who knows what her trajectory will be but at this point it's that to me is kind of settling that contradiction that i was having such a issue with with britney spears um in terms of uh of agency and in the body and i'm I'm happy to see a young woman in the same place as Britney Spears, who's maybe even learned from kind of the historical aspects of of celebrity and and Britney Spears and other celebrities that have gone through it. Um, that that she's learned from it, and I'm impressed. I'm impressed by it. We'll see how it goes, though. Um, I'm not putting all all, all of the not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We've got a long way to go, y'all. This is uh, All the Good Girls Go to Hell. Again, a song by Miss Billie Eilish. My Lucifer is lonely Standing there, killing time Can't commit to anything but a crime Leaders on vacation An open invitation song the lyrics are about climate change which is interesting i just my own interpretation without listening too much to the specifics of the lyrics more just thinking of the title um initially i interpreted it interpreted the song at least the song's title um as kind of a reference to to how um to to what I've spoken about so far, and, and you know, women like Britney Spears, like Billie Eilish, Amy Winehouse, you know, these people that are revered, these good girls, these people that are revered for um, 
their talent or their beauty or their virtue even, um, you know, end up getting crucified <laughs> um, by the public. And uh, I that, that was kind of my initial interpretation of it. And it actually um, kind of womanhood being misunderstood or, or being um, somewhat um, troublesome to mass consciousness is something I similarly found in the poem Her Kind by Anne Sexton. I'll be reading that now. I have gone out, a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night, dreaming evil. I have done my hitch, over the plain houses, light by light, lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled with the skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods. Fix the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging, and disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I am her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots, survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Um, really cool, really cool, really dark. Um, and uh, Halloween-esque almost. Chilly, autumnal, those are adjectives that come to mind. Um, I interpret this poem. I haven't looked at, as to see what the poem is about, according to Anne Sexton or to scholars who study poetry. And I'm not the best at studying poetry um, because I can be really subjective. Um, but but just upon reading this myself, I'm gonna I interpret it as kind of misunderstood womanhood and um, the way you know, women like a witch, like that's, you know, not quite a woman, like that's a witch. She's gonna be, you know, burned at the stake and um, disrespected for her, you know, superpowers or her, you know, evilness, um, her 12 fingers, you know, for everything that make her unique or supernatural, she's, she's gonna be, um, She's not quite a woman, quite. Um, and then on to, you know, uh, the last, I have ridden in your cart driver, wave my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. So like this image of being, um, I don't know, I got the image of being run over um, for, for, being, for being a woman. Basically, my interpretation is that this poem is about what kind of womanhood being misunderstood. Oh, and that, that there is there in the poem. A woman like that is misunderstood, misunderstood, vilified for being a woman, um, crucified for being a woman, you know, run over <laughs> for being a woman, and all the ways that, that our culture um, just... Uh, 
disrespects that's not the best word um but but the way that womanhood is treated and i i feel like when we're talking about women and pop music or artists um marginalized women working women um i think that's that all of these issues raised about agency and capitalism and and um con- you know empowerment i think um are really elucidated in in Anne Sexton's poetry there. Girls by the Swedish electronic music group Little Dragon off of their 2018 album No Boomer Rubber Band. From the lyric website Genius, Pretty Girl chronicles the life of the crime. The song admonishes the girl who looks through the world with big bright eyes. You magnify the universe, is one of the lyrics. To avoid getting stuck in her new world, she lives in her small world of Starbucks coffee, protein shakes, dreams of being on TV, and living among the social elite. Um, Many writers write tales of young girls moving to big cities in chase of the best life. This song, no doubt, essentially tells a girl she has the whole world that she waves about chasing a life while choosing material over responsibility. There's a use off of genius writing that. Um, this, the lyrics, it's basic, the song Pretty Girls is basically about chasing materialism, chasing superficial things, and, and getting, seeing that through rose colored glasses. And I, I, I relate to that as someone who, at, a, at one point in their life, definitely saw, I definitely saw things, um, I'm gonna call them now, as being, you know, more superficial or materialistic. And just thinking that these, whatever it was, you know, <laughs> some crazy things, you know, certain clothes, certain clothing brands, or a certain, you know, uh, material object i don't even want to uh want to embarrass myself um would 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 somehow show or be proof that i was doing well or that i made it or that i growing up or that i was um i don't know popular good good who knows i mean i do know um but but just these kind of the different trappings that people get caught up in in regards to materialism and framing this again through the the lens of femininity and i don't think materialism is strictly a feminine issue by any means but i do think it's it's definitely a capitalist issue and um how this song does it um through the the different images that it offers 
is uh, is pretty uh, evocative. I love that word. Apparently, the Green Mermaid and the Wavy Mane. So that's a reference to Starbucks, California Dream, the Free Fantasy, that Carefree, that Beginner's Love, the Sugar Don't Love Banana Peel, You Trophy Star, Chewing a Protein Bar. So, uh, so that carefree, that beginner's love, the sugar don't live up. Like, you know, you have this, these, you see things with these big bright eyes, but like the reality ends up not living up, you know, um, at the end of it. And then you're just sailing on a banana peel, um, you know, which implies um, a faux pas or tripping and falling. They just use sailing because it, it sounds better and, and I think goes hand in hand with the, the California dream, the free fantasy, the carefree, the beginner's love, and sail in on a banana peel instead of tripping and falling. Um, your trophy star, like the stars in Hollywood, chewing a protein bar. I kind of think of like, I don't know if anyone in this class or who will listen to this has watched the show, The Hills. Um, it's about these materialistic girls in Los Angeles trying to be on a reality show. And so, and that's like all it's about is them just, it's like about materialism. And I even think of like influencer culture now or um, social media now, I guess, and kind of this idea that these different products and these different status symbols are what's going to make you, you know, you or is what, what's going to make you empowered or what's going to, you know, uh give a life of value or enable a life of value um and and the different things that people people do for that kind of stuff you're aiming for the real scene the fast luck tv dreams pretty girl gets stuck and i think that's almost to me a reference to like that reality show the hills like <laughs> offend anyone i know what whatever this is my podcast um no girl gets plastic surgery she'll look great because a lot of people don't look good after they do a lot of plastic surgery. It just looks kind of stuck. Um, and not just stuck physically, like, because of the surgery, but metaphorically, like, stuck in this, like, idea of what it meant to be a successful woman, a successful person, a public figure, a celebrity. Like, getting stuck in those ideas and, you know, this, this song kind of serving as kind of a warning. Like, pretty girl don't get stuck. Like... Um, those new the last line of the song is actually good, but it could pay your rent superficial stuff you know doing just to kind of get by uh, a user on junior wrote to me this is a reference to the way the girl will get into the celebrity scene she wants to be in so badly small model jobs or perhaps prostitution and like costs like you have to do all this stuff like kind of is it worth just to pay your rent these new lashes mm, yeah they could pay their rent is it worth it um and obviously, like linking this back to uh, to to pop stardom, to Britney, to Billy, um, it's kind of like is it is it really worth it to live up to to these standards? Um, having to kind of compromise and sacrifice yourself and apply products to your to yourself in order to 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 rise in in social status and and wealth. Um, I, 
I mean, I don't know. I guess for some people, maybe it is, or at least at a particular moment for some people it is. Um, and it looks really good at first, but then it, it kind of wears off and becomes kind of illusory. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but I do think that this song kind of serves as a warning. And, and and a witness, you know, as this songwriter is an entertainer herself, like, and maybe maybe the songwriter has kind of had to do some inquiry inquiry into what she's willing to compromise and what she's willing to do to to make it, so to speak, and um, and um, you know, what sacrifices are worth it. Don't get stuck. Just be you. Just be real. Pretty girl, you're pretty. Don't get stuck. My anaconda don't, my anaconda don't, my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hun. Boy, toy named Troy used to live in Detroit. Big, big, big money, he was getting some coins. Went for the shootouts with the Lord, but live in a palace. Bought me Alex and the McQueen, he was keeping me stylish. Now that's real, real, real. One in my purse, cause I'm just a kill. Who wanna go first? I had him pushed him down. Why as hell I got them thirsty back and feel I'm on some dumb shit By the way, what he say? He can tell I ain't missing no meals Come through and check him in my automobile Let him eat it with his grills He keep telling me to chill He keep telling me it's really love my sex appeal He said he don't like I'm bony He wants something he can grab So I pull up in a jacket and I hit with that like dun 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 Was uh, Anaconda by Nicki Minaj, and speaking of getting stuck <clears throat> in regards to plastic surgery, no judgment, just pointing it out, just pointing it out. <laughs> I don't think she's trying; she's ashamed of it, so it's all good. Um, uh, that that track is is um, basically about very directly about Nicki Minaj's large rump 
and and begins with you know that that song samples um baby got back which is all about the male gaze i mean that's how the song starts it's it's two guys or no it's it actually starts with with girls it's actually that song's actually maybe about the female gaze um but you know but it ends up being rappers you know rapping about how they love big butts and, and stuff like that which is fair like you know tina from bob's burgers loves butts like there's nothing wrong with loving butts and i think i think that that's why it's it's puzzling to me how like when is and again tina is a like pubescent kid talking about loving bunts like of course it's a cartoon it, it's again it's like when is sex funny when is sex empowered when is it problematic and we need to watch ourselves and critique what's going on um and Nicki minaj is definitely someone who is outspoken who is shameless so to speak um who's proud and i mean i love Nicki Minaj's voice. I love how she raps. Um, I was impressed when this song came out. I find it, you know, a little bombastic um, as well. Um, you know, a little, little much. And looking back, I'm definitely like, girl, <laughs> like, do we really need that? And a lot of people um, find found Nicki Minaj. You know, this particular. This was. This was hype back in the day, this this song and this video and, and Nicki Minaj at this time. So um, people, it was that, that same thing, you know, are you just like playing up? Like, you know, you're objectifying yourself, sure. But is it like, is that it? Is it empowering or are you just playing into the expectation, you know, of the male fantasy? And is there any empowerment in that, if that's the case? Um, so I looked at an article that summed it up pretty nicely. And it's called My Anaconda Don't, A Black Feminist Analysis of Nicki Minaj by a writer named Eliza Vigderman. Um, and, and she kind of uh, dissects what she calls myth, myths around Nicki Minaj. The first myth is uh, Nikki is only famous because of her big butt. Um, and, and she quotes another, she quotes someone named Teresa Renee White. The public sexuality, explicit humiliation, and fascination of Minaj's black body reveals a close resemblance to that of Venus Hot and Tot. The 2011 hip hop chart topper has been publicly acknowledged for her large, more for her large buttocks than her rap talent. Unlike v Venus Hottentot, however, oh, so this is now the, the writer of the article. Unlike Venus Hottentot, however, Nikki's display of her sexuality is under her control and is not the direct result of colonization. While Hottentot was merely an object for the male gaze, Nikki shows off her body with pride, disrupting the Western idea that thin and blonde means beautiful. As well, uh, White does not mention does not to mention her rapping talent, which has made her the biggest female rapper in the hip hop industry right now. Jennifer Don Whitney reports that when Pink Friday went platinum in 2011, it had been preceded by an eight year drought for women in the rap hip hop 
industry. In a sexist male-dominated hip-hop climate, Nikki emerges an, as an exceptional force. She constructs her own narrative, which centers Black womanhood. So, I mean, I'm I'm for that. Like, I think that's that's one. I think that's one way to look at it. Um, it's interesting though how you can kind of have two separate realities, you know, viewpoints, opinions, basically, around the same thing. You know, to some people, it's playing into, um, you know being more of a, a sex symbol than a talented artist and to playing that aspect up. To some people, it's, no, she's actually constructing her own narrative. And it's, you know, I, I wonder, is there an answer? Is there one specific answer? Is it both? Is it everything? Um, the second myth is Nikki is fake. By pretending to be Barbie, she upholds Western standards of beauty. Um. Barbie can be seen as an object who is always signified instead of signifier. She exists as an object for little girls to project their fantasies onto. Black women similarly have a history of being signified with stereotypes such as Jezebel or, and Mammy. Uh, however, Whitney argues, Minaj's brand of Barbie doll-like femininity, femininity both imitates and parodies the iconic doll going beyond straightforward identification. By, by imitating a Western ideal of beauty, Nikki exaggerates and subverts Barbie. <sighs> Rather, she deconstructs notions of white supremacy, Western beauty, and womanhood through a, a parody imitation of the I iconic doll. See, and then, yeah, I guess my, you know, that's, it's like, that's one way to look at it. I, I almost am like, well, is that, um, how much of a reach is that, I suppose? How much do you have to kind of presuppose or, or kind of craft like is that just a justification I guess is that just rationalizing someone who is trying to be a pop star and so has to live up to all the expectations of what being a pop star is being a, a woman pop star is I just I really wonder you know, you can say it's this, but is it really that? Um, that's, again, been my whole conundrum. This whole episode has been like, just because you're calling it agency and control, does that mean that it really is agency control? A agency and control. How wrapped up is it in just, you know, plastic surgery and fucking material, excuse my French, materialism and, um, you know, capitalism? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I like Nikki, but I don't know. And I, I like the song too. I think it's funny. I think Anaconda is a funny song. Again, the whole sex can be comedic instead of tragic. Like it doesn't have to be an issue. It can just be fun. Why can't it just be fun? Why does it have, why does this Anaconda video have to be so scrutinized rather than just being fun? Um, and why are we in a place in society? And I'm not saying it's a wrong place to be in society, but but kind of I see what got us here as a society to be in this place of critiquing objectification of women, sexualization of minors, um, materialism and capitalism, right down to the way we, you know, put plastic into our bodies to fit some weird, bizarre beauty standard, <laughs> um, and. Uh, 
yeah, it's 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 inter- it's really fascinating to me, y'all. If you've made it this far, I commend you because this is fascinating to me. I don't expect it to be fascinating to everybody. Um, the third myth is the Anaconda video confirms stereotypes of Black female sexuality as excessive and destructive. Hmm. Unlike some hip-hop videos in which female bodies only exist for the male gaze, Minaj creates a female-dominated world where she both controls and enjoys her sexuality. Throughout the video, Minaj is shown in erotic situations with other women, subversive in an industry with few queer women of color. In the jungle of Anaconda, Minaj explores her sexuality free from the male gaze. There's even a kitchen scene where she's like, kind of like, she crushes a banana. So like the phallic symbol of the banana, she crushes it in her hands. Um, and then the video ends with her giving Drake a lap dance, the rap the rap singer, hip hop singer, Drake uh, a lap dance. And this article, from, when, when she gives Drake a lap dance, she completely dominates him as he sits powerless to her fierce sexuality. Minaj demonstrates her body as powerful, a source of pride and eroticism all on her own terms. Uh, Nicki Minaj, the article ends, Nicki Minaj exemplifies an imperfect feminism as she grapples with her multifaceted identity as a queer black woman. By refusing to adhere to a single identity, Nicki refuses to be signified. See, that's an empowering way to look at, um, to look at, at the narrative that, you know, and I guess it, it is true. Like, is this all in how we frame things? I don't think there's a right or wrong, you know, if you're going to be critical of the Anaconda music video, if you're going to applaud it. Um, I don't think one or the other is right. And I've probably had both viewpoints and others throughout throughout time since that video has been released. But um, I think that that's, that's an interesting way to look at it as someone who's exploring kind of themselves as this multifaceted person and the Anaconda video is just one manifestation of that exploration. Um, and as far as pop music and, and art and, um, you know, individuality, I think that that's all valid and um, kind of, you know, uh, reason enough. I, I think that justifies it enough, honestly. Fat feet with bullies with no match for me. I still 
Right on. Uh, we're, we're closing this podcast with a song called Man. That was Nico Case off of the 2013 album, The Worst, Thi- Worst Things Get, The Harder I Fight, The Harder I Fight, The More I Love You. Uh, if you don't know Nico Case, you've got to. Um, that She's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. And uh, this album is probably my favorite by hers. There are her first two for few two first two are really good as well um so ending here nico case incidentally out of kind of everyone i've played tonight maybe save for little dragon um kind of resides outside of of celebrity she, you know she is a a famous singer songwriter who's been around for a, a long time and has made a living off of music. So she's successful, but she's not really a celebrity. And she's able to kind of um, be a little bit, you know, she doesn't have all of that to live up to, all everything that celebrities have to live up to. And this is what she says about the song Man that we just heard. I don't really think of myself specifically as a woman, you know, I'm kind of a critter, I'm an animal. Everyone's an animal, and I find I'm much happier and well-balanced if I think of myself that way because, you know, I'm a straight white female or whatever at the gynecologist, but the rest of the time, you know, I feel pretty all over the place. I'm probably a little imbalanced in that if you were to look at a human creature as a kind of vase or something, my glass is a little bit more full of the man stuff than the woman stuff. Um, so cool i love the way she puts words together even just in that quote that was so rad um and yeah i i think some of the lyrics um i'm a man that's what you raised me to be i'm not an identity crisis this was planned (laughs) um i'm a man as in a citizen of mankind it's what kind of animal i am it's that simple uh, I'm not. I'm a man, and not just casually. I pull this barge full time. The treehouse cannot support me. So, it's it's cool. It's talk about empowerment. You know, this this whole podcast. I've been wondering about agency and empowerment and womanhood and music artists and this specific music artist is able to kind of not reject her femininity, but um, claim manhood. And that's how, you know, her her own version of manhood. And that's where she finds empowerment, not in the necessarily, who knows, but necessarily like the materialism of womanhood or objectifying oneself to the male gaze or plastic surgery um and here we are and i I don't think she's more right or wrong than anyone else i mean is that is is 
you know, she, I mean, some would say, I don't know. I feel like some people would be like, she's rejecting her womanhood. I mean, I kind of thought that for a second as well, but um, I think what she's saying is, is I think again, this idea of, of playfulness around gender, well, in this case in gender, not just sex. And um, it's not an identity crisis. Like this is just who she is. And um she can she can still be a, a female or she can still be seen as a woman and that's cool but um as she says in the song i'm a man you'll have to deal with me my proxy is mine you'll deal with me directly um you know no one's uh, some uh user on genius wrote no one stands for case as a proxy might be as a man might typically for a woman she stands for herself um you'll deal with me directly. Um, I think, I think all of these women that I've, I've listened to tonight have, uh, have, you know, obviously a certain amount of power. Um, they've all contributed to the either artistic landscape or pop cultural landscape or musical landscape in their individual ways. And I think there's empowerment in that, um, regardless of um, their celebrity status or the kind of uh, material uh, they've been subjected to or that they've experienced or lived through. And um, I think it's, I'm, I'm glad that this week I really kind of got to communicate the different lessons that, or lessons, questions that I have around, around this topic. Um, I don't talk about these things a lot with other people and to explore it through music was really cool. So if you've made it this far, again, I am very thankful to you. Um, if you want to leave a comment, I would love to explore this topic more with you and ask questions, critique, get dirty, get deep. Have a good week. Thank you.